we are doing a series, three weeks, um, talking about the vision of Red Sea. Here's the main gist of why we're doing this. The vision of Red Sea is not changing. So our pastor, as many of you know, is going to be moving to plant a church, Pastor Sean. And uh, a lot of big changes are happening in Red Sea right now. But even though these changes are happening, the vision of Red Sea is remaining the same. The vision is we want to draw to Christ, which I'm going to talk about today and unpack a little bit. Develop in community. Uh, Mr. Duncan is going to talk about that next week. And then deploy into culture. And Royce is going to share with, that, with us about that on week three. So we're talking about draw to Christ this morning. So if you got your Bibles, you'd open them up. Matthew 16. We're going to be in verse 13. Let's unpack this, what Katie just read for us. So it says, when Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi. Where is Caesarea Philippi? Where were they? I want to talk a little about about where they were. It's a really interesting place. I have a picture of Caesarea Philippi. We can put up. Um, Caesarea Philippi was, if you you imagine in your mind, um, the land of Israel, and you have Jerusalem down here, which all of us know, and the uh, Jordan River runs up north, and then you have the Sea of Galilee, and then above that, about as far north as you can go in Israel, is Caesarea Philippi. It's about 25 miles or more north, but also a little over 1,700 feet in elevation. So, he was taking his disciples basically up into the mountains. This is kind of a, it'd be a perfect resort spot. It'd be a perfect spot for man camp. Um, it's away from culture, so we don't have to worry about that. Um, and uh, it's up in a very serene, beautiful place. Um, it's known for all of its streams and waterfalls. Just, just imagine this beautiful place. You hear waterfalls, living water flowing, birds chirping, you're in nature. This is the place where he brought them. So he brings them up and he tells them some very important things here, one of which we're going to look at today. And this is also where we'll see a little bit later in in chapter 17, the transfiguration happened. So Jesus brought just three of his disciples up to a high mountain and he was transfigured before them. He came bright as the sun. They couldn't even look upon him. Just this amazing experience where he reveals his glory to them. This is where that happened. It's at the foot of Mount Hermon. It's a big mountain kind of like a Mount Hood in Israel. So they're at the foot of this mountain. Here's what's very interesting about Caesarea Philippi. It's also extremely pagan. So it was known in that time as an extremely pagan place. Okay, this is not, if you're looking for Christians, this is not the place to go, okay? Um, It started out as a place that was dedicated to worshiping Baal, which was the storm god of ancient history. During Jesus' time, it was dedicated to the Greek god Pan, who was the shepherd god of fertility. So this, uh, this picture, again, of Caesarea Philippi, this cave here is something they've excavated, and it was actually a shrine that was built to worship the god Pan. And uh, you can still see inscriptions on the walls and drawings of this. So this is where people would come. This is where they would gather. If you ask anybody in Israel at this time that was Jewish, you know, Caesarea Philippi, that's a pagan place. That is the evil place where you don't want to go. This is where people don't know about God. They don't care about God, many of the people. Um, It's a little bit similar maybe to a place called Portland, Oregon. Yeah. Portland, Oregon is one of the most unreached cities in America. In other words, I I read a statistic the other day, and I I try to be careful with statistics because I don't know how accurate they are all the time. But I read a statistic that in Portland, Oregon— 75% 75% of the people claim absolutely no religious affiliation whatsoever. So that means they're just, I'm just a human being, just trying to, to rule in this world. That's it. No religious affiliation. It's an extremely secular place. God of, God of the Bible, Jesus Christ, is worth studying him and revealing who he is. Is not someone that people claim here or even really show any kind of interest in. And here we are, Red Sea, saying, we want to draw people to Christ. And we're in Portland, Oregon, a place much like Caesarea Philippi. So Jesus brings the disciples up to this place, Caesarea Philippi. And here's kind of a closer look at the cave there. can imagine. Maybe he was standing looking at this, this place. Who knows where he was. But he asked him this really important question. Here's what it is. 
Who do people say that the Son of Man is? So what's he asking them? A Son of Man is a term that Jesus used and applied to himself, um, probably referring mostly to his humanity. He's the Son of God in human form. So he's saying, here I am. I've begun to reveal myself. I've begun to preach. People are beginning to to become familiar with my ministry and the things that I've said. And so he takes the disciples away to this remote place, and and he asks them, who are people saying that I am? And here's what they say. Some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Some were saying it was John the Baptist. Um, just prior to this, Herod, who was the king, had John the Baptist beheaded. So he was afraid that maybe Jesus was John the Baptist come back from the dead. Elijah was someone, one of the prophets that the Jewish people were expecting the end of, at the end times, that Elijah the prophet would come. Some of the prophecies mention that. So he was someone that they were waiting for. So some were saying, maybe this is Elijah the prophet coming. Maybe this is Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. They were saying, hey, maybe this is one of the prophets. No one was saying he was anything other than a human being. At the very best, maybe he was a prophet of God. Here's a question I want to ask us this morning. I'm going to throw this out here. And when I ask this question, you have an opportunity to respond. So I want you to give answers. Yell it out. Um, you have permission. You have the green light on that. Okay, and I'm hoping that you do because you all look really tired this morning. So if you need some coffee, I think there's some in the back. Um, you can grab a cup if you want. Here's a question. Why you imagine St. John's, okay? Just imagine the streets out there. Many of you live here. Uh, most of you have probably been there, um, hung out a little bit in St. John's. You're familiar with some of the, some of the life that happens on a daily basis. Imagine if we got up right now and went out into the community of St. John's. Don't worry, we're not going to do it. <laughs> Some of you are like, dang it, I knew I should have slept in this morning. Um, we just went out there together and we just started asking people randomly, who is Jesus? What do you think about, do you know who Jesus is? What do you think about him? What, what do you have to say about him? The question I have for you is this. What do you think, and, and you really have to try to put yourself in this real situation in your mind and imagine, what, what do you think people would really say? Here are some people out there. What do you think are some of the responses that you would get? Let's hear them. Right, just think about that. What, what do you think people would say? What would be some of the responses that we would get from people? Good teacher? Nice guy. Nice guy. I'm, not sure. I'm not sure. Get away from me. <laughs> I've heard that one before, actually. Because if you've done that before, haven't you? <laughs> it's the only way you could possibly know that. What else? A liar? Okay. Yeah. What do you want? <laughs> that's what they would say to you? Okay, that's, that could happen. Prophet? What else? Doesn't exist? Yeah. Some guy in a book? Yeah. Totally. One of many gods. Who? Indeed. Think some some might say he's the savior? Yeah. We might find a few out there. Uh, I am. <laughs> I have heard that one before too. Yeah. Expand your mind a little bit beyond St. John's, Portland, America, maybe just what are some things that you have heard people say? people that you know, what are they saying about him? What are things people are saying about Jesus? Throw some more out there. Yeah. Cool. Con artists. Not the only way. 
one of many ways. Yeah, man. It's a Republican. Yes. He was a Republican. I don't know if he still is or not. I like Jesus, but not the church. There you go. Now we're getting into it. Favors America over everyone else. Marketing scheme? Cool. How can you believe in someone you can't see in? Yep. Crutch. An excuse. What's that? God is in yourself. Yeah. Cool. Hmm. Hmm. See him as a way of being shamed. That's good. Yeah? Right. For someone who's just condemning, condemning you and never good enough. Yeah. 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 Definitely. Might be the experience with them. All right. Well, just so you know, a lot of people are talking about Jesus. They've been talking about him for a really long time. He is probably the most loved and hated person in history. People have died in his name. People have killed in his name. Um, Entire calendar is based upon his birth. He's changed world history. Um, Pop culture, you hear about him a lot. You may have seen him in some cartoon shows. Simpsons or South Park. Uh, you may have seen this t-shirt. Pretty popular. A lot of movie stars will be sporting it. Jesus is my homeboy. You can follow Jesus on Twitter. That's actually his profile picture. He has 320,600 followers right now. That's his latest tweet. I'll let you decide for yourselves whether it's the real Jesus or not. Um, this is real. Jesus is a popular figure. People are talking about him. People have things to say about him. You can hear musicians will say, I want to thank Jesus after they've given a performance that he probably would not necessarily approve of. Um, People are are throwing the name Jesus all around. People have opinions about who he is, what he's done. Um, You see this in pop culture. You see it in religions. Um, There are religions. Almost every religion knows, every major religion has something to say about who Jesus is. Um, Some might say that he was just a a prophet. Many of them would say that. A teacher. Um, Nathan touched on this a little bit this morning. Um, There's been what we call heresies about the nature of who Christ is, that he was just merely human being, or he was just God, wasn't really a human being. Um, One of my favorite heresies, (laughs) sounds horrible, is docetism. Because they believe that Jesus was here and he came, but he wasn't really here um, in the flesh. Uh, He wasn't really a human being. He just appeared that way. He was a phantom is what they literally say. I call it Scooby-Doo theology. Jesus was a phantom, right? And he would have gotten away with it too if it weren't for you darn kids. Um, But uh, people are saying all kinds of things. This is Nicene Creed. This is like the 4th century that we read this morning. In the 4th century, 400 years after Christ, they're having to come together and write this, formulate this creed because of all the false things that Jesus or, or that people are saying about who Jesus was and, and who he is. It's still happening today. Um, we got Jehovah's Witnesses are saying stuff about Jesus. Um, Mormons are saying stuff about Jesus. Islam has things to say about Jesus, and they will tell you exactly what they believe about him. Um, all of them are are false. They say some true things about him, some false things about him. Um, so Jesus is, is a popular figure. People are still talking about him over 2,000 years after his life and death on this earth. So 
He's, he's a popular guy, famous guy. So let's continue on. Here's what Jesus says. He asks the disciples. They tell him, here's what people are saying about you. And then he says to them this question. But who do you say that I am? So here's the flow. As he takes them to this place, this pagan spot, and he says, what are people saying? What are they saying about me? Up to this point, you notice that, you, that the apostles didn't respond with, well, some people are saying that you, you are the Messiah, that you are the Son of God. No one's saying that. They're saying you're just, you're just a prophet, some different which prophet you are. So he says, now who do you say that I am? You are my chosen disciples who have been following me. They've been walking most closely with him, watching his life, watching his miracles, hearing the things that he said. And this is what we call the great confession. It says, Simon Peter stands up after this question and says, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Amen? Amen. What is he saying here? Here's essentially what he's saying. Up to this point in the Gospels, we don't see an example of anyone acknowledging Jesus as the Messiah, acknowledging Jesus as the Christ. So this is the first time recorded where a person stands up and publicly says, you are the Christ, you are the Messiah. What, is the, what does he mean by the Christ? Christ is not Jesus' last name. It actually means something. It's a title given to him. Um, in the Hebrew, it would be Meshiach, where we get the word Messiah. The translation into Greek is Christos. So then we have the word Christ. That's where that comes from. It literally means, it's literally the Messiah, and it literally means the anointed one. So here's the deal with that. And we're just going to, we got to lay down the gospel here and who Christ is. So, so here's, what, here's what we're talking about essentially this morning, is that we as Red Church, as Red Sea Church, we as the Red Church, by the way, we changed the name. <laughs> um, no. As Red Sea Church, our mission is to draw people to Christ. So the question today is, who do we say that Christ is? Who are we drawing them to? We need to know who he is. We need to say something about him. Theologically, we call this Christology, the study of Christ, the nature of who he is. So we're just going to, we can't get into all of it, but we'll lay out really simply the gospel because ultimately we need to know what the gospel is. We need to know who Jesus Christ is and what he's done. Why is, why is he so important that that's, our number one thing is we want to draw people to him. So here's the gospel in a nutshell. God creates the world, creates it perfectly. He's the loving creator. He creates a man and a woman to enjoy each other, to enjoy his creation. Man and woman rebels against God. That's what we call sin. There, be, there comes a moment where the man and the woman decide we're not going to do it God's way. We're going to do it our own way. It's the opposite of worship. When we meet here this morning, when we raise our hands and we say, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. I believe that you are. I love you. I want to give my life to you. And we go out in the world and we try to live that way. That's worship. Sin is the opposite of that. When we don't do that, we turn away from God. And that's what's happened. And it's happened continually ever since. And sin is so ingrained in us as humanity that there's no way out of it. We're born into sin. We're completely lost. So God looks down and he says, okay, you've chosen to sin against me and turn your back on me. Now the penalty for that is death. You're going to die. The wages of sin is death. That's your payment. You want to go sin? Live your own way? Great. Here's your paycheck. It's death. You die. What does God do about it? Here's the good news. We're all in this boat. That's the bad news. The good news is that God has found a way to bring us back into relationship with him. Here's how he's done it. All through the Old Testament, we see the flow of history as he finds these people. He finds Abraham, and he calls Abraham. He creates a people through Abraham, the Jewish people, who will be his people. Through his people, the, a Messiah will come. He says, I promise that I'm going to send you a Messiah. The idea of a Messiah is, number one, he's the anointed one because he's going to come from the line of Israel's kings. So King David, God promises, you're going to have a son on the throne for all of eternity going to rule and be the king. This is the Messiah that's coming. Messiah is also going to be a savior. He's going to save us. He's going to rescue us. He's going to set up a perfect world. He's going to judge wickedness. 
and righteousness will reign forever. So this is Jesus. God decides to send his son, Jesus, who's born of a Virgin Mary, as we read earlier. He's born into this world, lives a perfect life, never sins. He's the rightful heir to the throne of David. He's the son of David. He goes to a cross willingly to be a substitute for our sins. So the payment of sin is death. No one else could pay for your sin. They'd have to be perfect, and they would have to be the Son of God. He dies as a substitute in our place for our sin. Why is he the one, only one that can do that? Because he's the Son of Man, and he's the Son of God. He's the Son of Man. He's 100% human, lives a perfect life, what no one else has done. But he's also the Son of God. He's the eternal Son of God, living with God for all of eternity in the perfect unity of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He is the one that does it. He's perfect. He doesn't deserve death, but he takes death so that we can be set free. So he pays for all of your sins and my sins on the cross. Three days later, God raises him from the dead, right? Which means the check is cleared, right? The payment is cleared. Our sins are forgiven. He has the power to forgive our sins. He is now reigning and ruling for all of eternity. He's going to come back and gather his people to himself, those who have trusted him, trusted in him to live with him, to be with him for all of eternity. So, how do we become saved? It's because of God's grace, his favor on us, that he initiated, did all of the work. We respond to faith, by faith in Jesus Christ. We say, I believe that. There's nothing I can do to get out of my sin. There's nothing I can do to please you. Every other religion in the world says there is. They're all trying to do that. God's like, there's no possible way. I've done it for you. So we turn around and say, thank you for this gift. We respond in faith. All of a sudden, we're brought into this relationship with God through Christ. And now we have joy. He gives us joy. He gives us his spirit, Holy Spirit, to live inside of us. We have this beautiful life with God. That's really what the gospel is all about. Jesus Christ is the central piece in that. Because he alone was worthy to pay for the sins of the world. He alone, salvation is through him alone. Through faith in him alone. So Jesus, so Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You are this one who we've been waiting for. But he doesn't completely understand it because when we read the passage after this. So Peter, this is funny because here's like the 12 apostles. Jesus asked them this key question, right? And Peter stands up and says, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, that's right, Peter. Blessed are you because you got it. You imagine all the other like 11 disciples. They're just like, dang it, he got the right answer, man. I got some serious points for him. We got to do something now, all right? So Peter, you can imagine, is feeling good about himself. He's just like, I got the right answer, right? We always joke about how, you know, the right answer in church is always Jesus. You know, Jesus is always the right answer. Well, this, it actually was the right answer here. (laughs) So Peter gave the right answer, okay? So he's feeling pretty good about himself. Well, right after this, it's actually kind of funny. Jesus starts telling him, now I'm going to suffer I'm going to die. Here's why. Peter takes Jesus, pulls him aside, and he says, No, Lord, this will never happen to you. And then Jesus says, Get behind me, Satan. <laughs> you don't have in, things the, in mind the things of God, but the things of man. So then he like totally blows it. Okay? So, lest you get too cocky in your Christian life. Remember this lesson. Here's why he does that. He gets a little bit of it. He understands. He says, You are the believe that you're the Messiah, but he doesn't completely understand what that's about. Jesus begins to unpack that. I'm going to have to die on a cross. There's a reason that I'm going to have to do that, because your biggest enemy is your own sin. It has to be defeated. Satan, the evil one, has to be defeated. And the only way that's going to happen is through the cross. So that's what that's all about. But Peter makes this confession, and he believes in his heart that Jesus is the Christ. And it's a good thing. You are the Messiah. You are the Christ, Son of the living God. Jesus answers him this way. Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, which means son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I want to talk about this, um, what Jesus' response for just a minute right here. He says, flesh and blood hasn't revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven has revealed it to you. What does he mean by flesh and blood? Flesh and blood is a way that the Bible talks about just humanity. Just means, it means you as a human being, 
in all of your own human effort, just merely human, on a, merely on a human scale. What he's saying is, you, didn't, you don't really know this. You can't really say this in your heart because someone else has taught it to you or because you have come to this conclusion by yourself. But how does he say it happened? Who revealed it to him? Father, my Father in heaven. What does he mean by this? Here's what I think he means. What he's saying is, for true conversion to happen, for you to really understand who Christ is, for you really to be drawn to Christ, truly, it's got to happen by revelation of the Father, where God himself reaches down inside of you and transforms your heart miraculously. You guys with me? It's the only way you can really come alive and say in unison with Peter, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. This is important for us because as we, as a church, as we have this task, this is part of our, our vision, this is our mission, is we want to draw people to Christ. Here we are in Portland, Oregon, one of the most unreached cities in America. We're walking out to 75% of the people don't have any religious affiliation whatsoever. We're walking into this completely secular culture doesn't know anything about Jesus, who he really is, and we're supposed to draw them to Christ. We're supposed to, to bring them and lure them in and help them come to know Christ and to be able to say, give this great confession that you are the Christ. I truly believe it. So in doing that, we have to understand something, that there comes a point where there's just some things that flesh and blood just cannot do. And here's where we make mistakes a lot of times as a church is that in that we have this grand scheme and this plan and all of these techniques. Um, there was a church I saw one time. They were having an Easter egg hunt, right? And they invited everyone in the community. It was actually pretty cool. Like I came and I'm like, dude, this is like, they're really, they got a lot of people in the community to come to this. It's pretty awesome, man. They're doing, no one else is doing this. So they're totally blessing the community, holding this huge um, Easter egg hunt. They had like a concert going on the stage in the park and it was just awesome. Everybody's just like, this is, what's going on? You know, this is great. I'm just like, man, this is awesome, you know? Getting to meet people, build bridges, all these kind of things. So they had this Easter egg hunt, and just like floods of just hundreds of kids go flying out, grab all these Easter eggs, and, and they said, inside, some of these eggs are prizes, right? So it's like, okay, a little more motivation there. So kids, they're getting these eggs, and you see some of the kids going, I got one of the prizes, and they're all stoked, you know, and they, they're going telling their parents, I got this prize, and just like, this is really cool, you know? And then the pastor gets up and announces, okay, everyone, some of you have received these prizes. And he says, this was a Saturday. So he says, we'd love to give you your prize. So to claim your prize, you need to come to church, Journey Church tomorrow at 10 a.m. We'll give you your prize. And I'm just like, oh my gosh, you just killed it, dude. And it just cracks me up because, and you can see people's faces too. It's like, okay, yeah, I knew there was some catch to this. Okay. It's like, what? I thought about this later. I don't know if anybody came to claim their prize. Maybe they did. I don't know. Yeah, I'll come to church, get my prize. It's like, are we trying to trick people into the kingdom? It's like, ah, now you have to come to church, get your prize. <laughs> All of a sudden, they're a Christian. They're like, how did this happen? I got tri- oh my gosh, I'm a Christian now. You tricked me. You know, it's just like, it's not going to happen that way, you guys. It can't happen by human effort. Flesh and blood can't do it. So in other words, I can try as hard as I can to convince you of this, and I can, we can create all these programs to help draw you to Christ and get you in. So all of a sudden we have all these people, and we're, the people are flooding in because the music's really good, and the speaker's preaching these sermons that are really engaging, and he's funny. I just I love that preacher down the street. I love that, that guy. He's just so funny. He always tells these funny stories, and then he, but then he gets really spiritual and serious too, and it's like, it feels good, you know, when I leave, like in my heart. I like to go there. I'm going to invite some of my friends, right? All this is happening, and yet God's looking down going, none of these people are even Christians. They're not really even Christians, even though they're probably some of the most excited people, and they're serving all these different areas. It can happen, you guys. It can happen by human effort. That's why we have Starbucks, Walmart, all these places that are just huge. How did this happen? It started this little hole in the wall. It's just huge because humanity was able to pull this off. Is, G, is the Holy Spirit alive and working in Starbucks Corporation? I don't think so. I could be wrong. I don't see signs of it, okay? 
and yet they've been able to do this. Is it possible for a church to be thriving and have hundreds and thousands of people coming and be the greatest show on the corner and for the Holy Spirit to not be working at all, for people's hearts not really being changed? I just want to unpack this for a few minutes on this point. Um, Paul talks about this a lot. It's actually a really interesting theme in Scripture. I'll just show you two little passages where he, he hints at it, and he does more than these, but 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Paul says this. It's right into the church. Therefore, this ministry, we have this ministry by the mercy of God. We do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. Then he says, we refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. So what he's saying right here is, we're just going to proclaim the honest word. Here it is. So that it's not, we're not going to use cunning we're not going to use slick tricks, bells and whistles. We're not going to tell you to come claim your gift at 10 o'clock on Sunday evening. We're just going to say, here it is. This is the truth of who God is. Commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God so that they hear the truth plainly. And then God's allowed to work. When we jump in the way with the bells and whistles, he's like, I can't work through that. You're in the way. Get out of the way. And he says, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing In their case, the God of this world, Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. Check this out. Satan has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Really quick. If Satan's blinded someone's eyes to understand the truth, how do I fight that? (laughs) How do I defeat that? How do I unblind their minds so they'll understand it? There's no way. I can't do it because I'm flesh and blood. Who's got to do that? Spirit. He's blinded their minds to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let, sh- let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. God shines in, turns from darkness to light. One more, I just want to read along these same lines as 1 Thessalonians. Here's what he says. Chapter 2. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you is not in vain, but though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, We had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. Check this out. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak. Not to please man, another way of saying flesh and blood, human beings, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is our witness. And then he goes on and says in verse 13, And so we thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you brothers became imitators of the churches of God in Jesus Christ in Judea. And check this out. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles. He goes on and on and on, all this stuff. Here's the point that he's saying. This is what I love about this passage. Is that he says, and you suffered. So he says, you received, we spoke the word of God to you clearly. We didn't use flattery. We didn't use deception. We didn't try to trick you into believing it. You accepted it, so first thing he says, we knew when you accepted it that it had to be from God (laughs) because we're just not that good of speakers. It had to be from God. It was the truth. We just threw it out there. He says this in different letters multiple times. But then he also says, and you suffered with the other churches. That's the key. Someone raises their hand and says, so I said, who wants to be a Christian in here? You raise your hand. Come on up. Let's pray a prayer over you. Just say this prayer. Okay, you're in. You're a Christian, okay? All of a sudden, somebody busts down the door with machine guns and goes, everybody's a Christian, stand up. We're going to kill you. And that person's like, stays on the ground. 
They're just like, I don't want any part of this, okay? Suffering, that's the thing. When you really believe something in here and it's transformed you and it's changed you, you're willing to suffer for it, aren't you? If you're just like, eh, this is kind of fun. Jesus sounds good. I like this church. I like what's going on here. I like the children's ministry. All of a sudden, suffering happens. Who are going to be the first people to jet? Those who don't really believe. So Paul's saying, you accepted the gospel, you believed it, and you were willing to suffer. Back to our passage. Peter, interestingly enough, is told by Jesus, not here but in another place, that he is going to suffer for the gospel, that he's going to die for the gospel. Can you imagine getting a prophecy from Jesus? You're going to die. Someone's going to take you and crucify you. So have fun. I'll see you. I'll see you later. See you in heaven. It's crazy, isn't it? But Peter continues on. He even, history tells us that he rejoiced in it. He even told him, hey, if you're going to crucify me, do it upside down because I'm not worthy to be crucified in the same way as my Lord Jesus Christ. That right there, I don't care if you believe any of this stuff or not, that guy believes it. Am I right? Believes it. Here's the point that I'm getting at. Jesus says, This was not revealed to you by flesh and blood. It was revealed to you by my Father in heaven. Something miraculous happened by the power of God, by the Spirit of God. Um, I, have a, I had a friend who I actually looked up to, learned a lot from, a believer in the church, and uh, loved, just flamboyantly loved God. He actually had his truck, actually had verses written all over it. <laughs> so he'd pull into church and, you know, you'd see him. I'd go for rides with him and just kind of be like, this is awesome, and I'm a little embarrassed too. But uh, it's just like all these verses all over the truck, you know. Like, Jesus loves you, blah, blah, blah. He was just sold out. I mean, you look at this guy, and you would go, this guy is a Christian, and he has completely renounced the faith because he wants nothing to do with God, and he's not a Christian, doesn't believe any of it. He's officially divorced from his wife now. He's also a believer. Living his own life. Living in sin. How did that happen? I don't know. I don't know the answer to that question. I don't know whether he still is a Christian. And uh, someday he's going to come back around. I don't know what's going on in his heart. But I know this, you guys. Becoming a Christian is not just something you sign up for because you like it and, and you start living this life. Something has to happen in our hearts. It's got to be real. Because only God can transform our hearts and cause us to really see the glory of Christ and to live this life through suffering and whatever it is. You guys with me? Okay. Why does this matter for us? Why is, how, do, how does this change what we do here? I can tell you some concrete example, practical examples of why we do what we do at Red Sea. Okay? First one is we preach through the Bible. So we don't stand up here and go, we're going to do a topic, we're going to talk about friendship today. And I looked at my concordance and good news, there's a lot of verses that talk about friendship. So we're going to hit all of those today. We don't care what the context is. You know, we're just going to string them all together. That's called topical preaching, springboard. I'm going to make the Bible say what I wanted to say. And we've done a little more topical recently where we've hit on certain topics, but we go into the Word. But normally, at Red Sea, we preach expositionally where we go through a book of the Bible. Here's what happens when you go through a book of the Bible. All of a sudden, you hit something, well, that's a tough passage. Ooh, I don't know how I feel about that. But guess what? We've got to preach on it. And Josh Duncan's up this week, so have fun, buddy. <laughs> you get to preach on the wrath of God. <laughs> you know? But the reason we do that is because we're not here to go, okay, you know, come and listen to what we have decided you all need to hear. Okay? We're just saying, this is what God has spoken. He wrote the letter. We're just mailman delivering it. Here's, here's the mail. And we want to preach in such a way where, where you look at the word and you say, look for yourselves. God is speaking. God speaks into your heart, not Billy speaking into your heart. Or Sean or Royce or Josh or whoever's up here. That's why we do, we do it that way. One of the reasons. God can speak. So you can either be repelled by it or really believe it. Um, when we lead worship, we can have really good music and be culturally relevant and do all these things which are important. But at the end of the day, nothing that I do up here is really going to cause a heart to stand up and give glory to the living God. I don't care how good the song is. 
what I say. It's going to happen when the Father changes your heart and transforms you. How does that change what we do? We want to get out of the way, create space for that. We want to choose songs that proclaim the gospel, proclaim the truth of God so you're hearing that. You're soaking it in, and we're, and we're teaching what worship really is and what the Bible says that it is. When we're discipling people, this is huge as well. How are, this is always that we're drawing people to Christ, when we're drawing them in, into uh, community, in our missional communities we meet throughout the week. All of these things, we have to keep this in mind because it's very easy to get off track. SOMA is one of the tools that we're using now, which is awesome. They're very good at, at strategically saying, here's what we're going to do. Here's some strategic steps that we're going to take. And it gets really exciting, doesn't it? When you have vision, you have specific mission, and it's written out, and you're like, yeah, I'm excited about this. You know what can happen really easily is all of a sudden you're doing all this, and you're excited about it, but Jesus is back here. <laughs> we're not dependent on the Spirit of God. Prayer is huge. How can people who are blinded by the light of, the devil's blinded their eyes, how can their eyes be open? Prayer. Because God's the one that, can, that does it through the gospel. All right. I don't want to belabor it. You guys with me? All right. Just nod your head once if you are. Two times this way if you're not. Okay. All of you that are not, I'm going to have to leave you in the dust. Here we go. All right. So let's just unpack the rest of this. Tells Peter, blessed are you for this confession because God has revealed this to you. The Father has revealed it to you. You have been drawn to Christ. Verse 18, and I tell you, you are Peter. Here's, here's how I want to turn this as we go. Peter tells Jesus who he is, right? And then Jesus turns and tells Peter who he is. You get that? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, blessed are you, because you truly know that. And now I tell you, Peter, who you are. This is amazing. Because when we see the light and the glory of who Christ really is, and we understand that, and it's transformed our hearts, and we believe the gospel of Christ, he tells us who we are. Now it's suddenly saying, you are a child of God. You've been saved, forgiven of your sins. Your sins, Nathan was singing about, washed away. From the east is, as far as the east is to the west, they're gone. They're gone. You're forgiven. I paid for your sin. I love you. You're loved by God fully. It doesn't matter what your mom and dad think of you, your brother and sister, your friends, what so-and-so says about you. I love you completely. You're mine. And you are a part of my family, which is the church, and I have a mission, a specific purpose for you. That's pretty awesome, isn't it? This is what he tells Peter. I tell you, Peter, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. On the guy who he calls Satan just moments later, (laughs) who's totally screwing up, that's who he's going to build his church on. (laughs) Is that a relief to anyone? Okay. I'm going to build my church on you. Here's Here's the... this, this is like one of the most controversial passages in history. I'm not going to go there. Why? But this passage has been, is the reason we have the Pope of the Catholic Church who believes that the rock, so the, the, the debate is on what is the rock that he's referring to. The Catholic Church believes it's Peter. So he's building his church on Peter. So all the popes are in the line of Peter. That's who he's building his church on. Uh, we can't go into it. That's not right. Um, Protestants believe the rock is the confession, Peter's confession. You are the Christ, Son of the living God. That's what I'll build my church on. There's a play on words here you don't really see in English, but the word, Peter's name is Petros, which is the same word for rock. And then he says, on this rock, this Petra, I will build my kingdom. Um, I'm not a rocket scientist. Not even really that smart. But it sounds like he's talking about Peter. <laughs> That's just, I'm just going to give you my take on it. You are rock, and on this rock, I will build my church. Okay? What is he really saying here? Let's break this down. The bottom line is this. He's saying, yes, it's your confession, and it's you. What he's saying is, I'm going to build my church on, on you, on these 12 apostles, and on all of those who will come to Christ through your testimony and through their testimony and through their 
proclamation of the gospel all the way down to us today in St. John's here at Red Sea. I'm going to build my church through you imperfect people who I'm going to save and transform your hearts and your lives. And I'm going to build it on your testimony because all those people are going to stand up with you, Peter, in your line and say, Jesus, you are the Christ. 2,000 years later, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And I'm going to build my church. This is awesome, you guys. Um, Peter wrote later in 1 Peter. This is one of the letters that he wrote. It's interesting that he wrote this. Check it out. Chapter 2, verse 4. Peter says, Church, as you come to him, a living stone, a living rock, rejected by men in the sight of God, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, that's Jesus, the cornerstone, you yourselves like living stones, you yourself like living rocks, just like Jesus told me, you like stones are being built up as a spiritual house. Guess what that spiritual house is? Church. The church! Shout it out, brothers! Brothers and sisters! I'm up here by myself, man. The church! Man! You're alive up in here. I'm not even that charismatic, and I'm, you guys are bringing it out of me. All right. It's scary. You are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. What was the job of the priests? To bring people to God. You bring your offering, your sacrifice, they bring it before God, you're forgiven. We're a priesthood. Our job is to bring people to God. To offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. He goes on in verse 9 and says this beautifully. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. If that doesn't turn you on, you may not be a Christian yet. <laughs> that's, what, that's what we're doing here. Is that awesome? Peter's saying this. He's like, look, you guys, this is true for all of us. Jesus is saying, on this rock, I will build my church. And he's been doing that for 2,000 years. That's why we're here today. Then he says this, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. This is like the, the verse where we've read this as hell's trying to take us down, but we're huddled up in a ball and he's not going to be able to take us down because we're closed up in our gates and it's fortified and we have a hedge of protection around us, right? The hedge of protection, you guys heard of that? There's a comedian that uh, talked about that. It's really funny. A hedge of protection, like a hedge is greenery. So I, think, I don't know if Satan can get past hedges. Apparently he's allergic to greenery, gardening, for some reason. If I want a hedge, dude, I want a steel, I want a like, concrete wall with some barbed wire on the top, you know. Um, anyway, so we're huddled in, right? God's going to protect us. Hell's not going to prevail. Check this out. That's not the way to read this. Historically, if, uh, if a nation declared war on another nation and they were going to, you know, to take them out, basically, everyone would go into the city. It was a walled city with gates. They would shut themselves in. And the other nation that was coming against them would try to get through those walls. And it's, it would take like months and months and months, even years sometimes. So the people are living in there. They're running out of food. They're dying. They're trying to get through the walls. You've seen it. They're, they're dumping hot oil on their heads, whatever. This is a battle. What he's saying is the church, hell's not going to prevail against the church. I will build my church and hell will not be able to prevail against it. Hell is literally Hades, which means death, the realm of the dead. What he's really saying is, death will not overcome my church. It will not die. You with me? I'm sending my church. You are my church. I'm building it, and it will not die. Death will not conquer my church. Here we are 2,000 years later. It's been amazing to see it throughout history. Guys, this is what we're a, a part of. We don't, have to be, we don't have to fear death anymore. The resurrection, Jesus Christ conquered that. Yes, we die, but we're, we'll be raised again with him forever. Saying death will not prevail against it. I'm building my church. We're a part of that. Then he says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. We're going to end with this. This is also controversial. Okay, here's the deal. Gives them the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whoever has the keys has the authority. 
especially in these times. You got the keys, you're the one that can open the doors, let people in. Priests had keys to the temple. You're carrying the authority. He's saying, you, giving you the keys to the kingdom of heaven, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. This has been abused over the years, binding and loosing, as like binding demons up, all that kind of stuff. You may have heard people pray, I just bind you, Satan, right now. And I don't want to belittle it, but number one, I don't know if a Christian can bind Satan. Satan's really big. And uh, I just can't imagine that Satan is just, I bind you, Satan, all of a sudden these ropes go around him. He's just like, what is going on here? I cannot get out of these ropes, right? Uh, It says in the scripture that Michael the archangel, uh, I think it was Jude, talks about him. Even he, when he was fighting Satan, said, the Lord rebuke you. So this has been abused in a lot of ways. What does it actually mean? Do we even really know? Well, in Jesus' time, binding and loosing is a Jewish term that came about, and it basically means prohibiting and permitting in teaching. So the Jewish rabbis would say, if someone brings up a teaching or a question or whatever, they would say, we bind that, we prohibit that. That's incorrect. That's not a good interpretation of the Bible. Permitting means we permit that. So there were two big schools of thought back then, Shammai the rabbi and Hillel the rabbi. Shammai was known for uh, binding everything, just like he was like a legalist, you know, conservative, fundamentalist, like can't do anything fun. Hillel... <laughs> He was the one that was saying he was a little more loose, held things loosely. So binding and loosing, there's a lot of that going on in there. What is he really saying? And he's saying what happens on earth happens in heaven. Here's what he's saying, you guys. We have the keys of the kingdom. We have the gospel. We're bringing it to people and saying he's giving us the stewardship of the gospel. Saying I'm entrusting it to you guys to bring it and to explain to people what the gospel is that I've revealed to you and help them come to know who I am and disciple them and help them learn to live and become followers of Christ. That's what we've been given. So that's our job. So we draw to Christ. You guys up for the challenge? All right, a couple of you. It's going to be fun. We've got to get moving here. I know it's, we're going late. I got long-winded. I'm sorry. Um, here's how I want to end today. I want us to feel the weight of who Christ is. We're going to spend some time confessing who he is. We're going to take communion. This is the heart of what Christ has done for us. His body was given for us on the cross. His blood was spilled so that we can be saved and come to know him. When we come and take this, we're saying in our hearts, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. You are the Messiah. You are my Messiah, my Christ. You've given yourself for me. I believe in you. We're going to do that together. Let's meditate on who he has told us that we are as the church. And uh, Nathan's going to come up and lead us. Let's just sing from our hearts to God. Thank you for listening to this message from Red Sea Church. If you would like more information about Red Sea, including more audio messages, please go to our website at www.redseachurch.org. If you would like to contact Red Sea, you can email us at info at redseachurch.org.